this yes. is hell. Okie doke. Chris, you know what I just realized? What is it? This box of Kleenex I've been using over here for the last year and a half, it's now almost empty. I stole this from the hospital. <laughs> totally. I'm, I'm calling the cops on you. <laughs> it's as bad as tearing the, uh, the, the tag off the mattress. It's exactly. Just as dangerous. Exactly. Uh, I just find it hilarious because I was like, where the hell did I get this box of Kleenex from? And that was a year and a half ago. <laughs> so it lasted. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. We are continuing our This is Hell Best of 2023 series with a conversation on exactly that. The U.S. obsession with the bottom line over everything else, including feeding people. The morality of feeding others can be found in many religions. In Jewish doctrine, God commands us to share our bread with the hungry and bring the homeless into our house. It also insists on a commitment to helping the hungry person amongst us. In Christianity, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 appears in all four Gospels. Human generosity and faith is part of the miracle. Jesus takes what's offered to satisfy the needs of the hungry and multiplies it. In Islam, the righteous are those who give food in spite of their own need to the needy and the orphan and the captive saying in their hearts we only feed you for the sake of God and we desire nothing in return from you not even a word of thanks the Buddha said in giving food one gives five things to the recipients one gives life beauty happiness strength and mental clarity. In Hinduism, sharing food, according to the Bhagavad Gita, is the highest form of karma. This means volunteering time and preparing meals that can be shared with those in need. And as I've learned from living here on Devon Avenue, many people who follow Sufi Islam are constantly giving up free meals to people, to the homeless, here on Devon Avenue. There is seemingly nothing more ethical than feeding others. But in our one market under God and the religion of capitalism, making money is far more important than helping fellow humans who are malnourished and those that are starving to death. Today, we are playing our October 10th interview with award-winning agricultural journalist, Alan Giebert, who had just posted the Baffler Magazine article, Farmed Out, American Agriculture is About Business, Not Food. Alan knows what farming is about because he was raised on a 720-acre, 100-cow Southern Illinois dairy farm. Listener Jen D. wrote to us to suggest we replay the interview with Alan. Jen told us, I recommended the conversation to my parents, who grew up in farming communities in Southern Illinois as well, and I generally don't share my political views with them. However, they both thought it was spot-on and thought-provoking, and I usually can't get them to listen to or read anything I ever recommend. So back in October, when introducing the discussion we will be playing today, I mentioned how U.S. agriculture has little to do with feeding the world, and even less to do with providing quality, healthy food to the public. Agriculture and feeding people have little to do with one another in the United States. U.S. agriculture actually produces far more livestock feed than it does food for us poor humans. It's all because of the introduction of free market reasoning to food production, which has led to highly concentrated big agriculture with its huge farms that have changed farming from a way of life 
to being a big business. In doing so, agriculture has destroyed small-town rural America, no matter what members of those communities say or want you to believe. You can follow Alan on Twitter, or whatever the hell it's called anymore, at Alan Giebert, G-U-E-B-E-R-T. And you can find his regular column at farmandfoodlife.com. Producing today's show is Chris Coolfan. Chris, how have you been? Anything new in your world? Um... Uh... Nothing, nothing, nothing too crazy at this point. Uh, the only thing going on this weekend is um, going door to door to canvas for Bring Chicago Home. So I'm pretty excited about that. I like door to door canvassing because I like being yelled at by people. But I have great conversations at the same time. Too, what, so. What's the campaign that you're working with again? Bring uh, Bring Chicago Home. What is that? Well, what that basically is, Brandon Johnson, when he ran from here to Chicago, ran on uh, eventually uh, saying if it comes to his desk, he would pass if city council puts it through his desk, Chicago city council, that is. Yeah. And what that is, it takes revenue from uh, houses, so uh, let's say property sold over a million dollars. And that revenue goes into building SROs or permanent early shelters for homeless people, basically. There aren't like homeless shelters, but you know, things get stolen by I mean, from, right. from one person to another. They actually like actual housing for homeless people. Uh, and I take it personally because one of my close friends who's homeless for nine years just got housing the other day. Wow. So, yeah, so when I met him, I'm like, I got to work on this, this door-to-door campaign. And it, it's revenue that, 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 this, that, that the properties already get taxed on. Right. The nicer thing about this is you uh, uh, you pay a lower, this does get passed, people, uh, properties make an under million, actually pay lower property taxes. Oh, that's so, really cool. But the scare behind it is, that especially if you read a lot of these, these you know, trade, uh, these business, uh, like Cranes, Chicago business, stuff like that, they'll try to have scare tactics saying, oh, well, you know, property values go down, stuff like that. You know, just kind of redlining tactics from back in the day about how right. scary this policy would be but at the same time uh it's it's not going to cost taxpayers any more than it has already cost especially if taxpayers property owners that pay over a million dollars you know over a million dollars when they basically you know purchase something over a million like over one million dollars and over they have to pay property taxes uh they're paying the same amount either way so this is now being redistributed to home, pretty much housing for the homeless when i uh, worked at a local chicago tv newsroom for several years uh, it was pretty obvious from the first time I interviewed anybody from Crane's Chicago Business that that publication has lots of conflicts of interest. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It just seems like a kind of a propaganda rag sheet for the uh, business community without ever having it, many criticisms at all about the business community. Yeah, it says Neutra is a Wall Street Journal that made Mussolini a person, <laughs> uh, per man of the year in the 1930s. So. Uh, yeah, it, it also Financial Times, but that's what's great about the Financial <laughs> Times. They don't really, it's really funny. They don't care that you, if you're reading it and you're like, wow, that seems unethical because they know their audience. So it's just like, oh, you want to know what's going on in, in the world of really horrible people? Read the Financial Times. That's the paper that uh, they had this article right after the uh, invasion of Iraq, pointing out that Halliburton was uh, doing business, or no, right uh, after 9-11, that Halliburton was still doing business with Iraq, and or with Saddam Hussein, and it was something that was just reported as, hey, guess what uh, Halliburton's doing? Not like it was a bad thing or anything, and then nobody else picked up on it. So you're able to find out what's happening in the business world because they don't seem to be ashamed of what they're doing. So what's new in my world is shortly after last Thursday's Patreon podcast, myself and the person I live with who I love and has the legal right to pull the plug on me if things go awry, 
health-wise. We went to go get our uh, COVID and flu vaccines in preparation of visiting family over the upcoming holidays. And yet again, I experienced pretty bad side effects. They were not as bad as they have been in the past. I did not have a fever like I have before, but I did have the aches and pains that accompanied earlier injections. But like in the past, those aches and pains lasted about 48 hours. However, I, I had a lot of work to do around the house, and I was not about to allow cramping muscles and stiff joints to get in the way of what I needed to do. So I pushed myself, got the work done, and regretted doing so as the pain kept getting worse and worse to the point where Saturday night we could not go to either holiday party we had been invited to, and instead I spent the evening encased in ice packs while snacking on Tylenol. Obviously, I make some very, very poor health decisions in my life, but as someone who does make very, very poor health decisions, so you don't have to, may I humbly suggest that if you are like me and have had not so great reactions to the vaccines, don't do a damn thing for a day. Sit back, relax, recuperate, and maybe your aches and pains won't last as long as my aches and pains did last weekend. So as we mentioned earlier this week, with our very, with your very kind help listening audience, we really, really appreciate it. This Is Hell has been named a finalist as Chicago's best podcast in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll. Also, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz, that's me, has been nominated as a finalist in the same poll as best radio DJ. You can now vote for us as of this moment under the city life category at chicagoreader.com slash best. Polls are open through January 14th, 2024, and the winners will be announced sometime in February. So if you want to really annoy Chicago's corporate establishment media, vote for completely listener supported anti-corporate this is hell as best podcast and me chuck mertz as best radio dj under the city life category at chicagoreader.com slash this is hell chris please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience now that henry kissinger is dead who is the next war criminal you'd like to see keep henry henry uh, company in hell did you see one of the people on uh, discord said that they wanted it to be bernie sanders uh, <laughs> how bernie is right now with gaza I, I i a little bit feel the same way too and i used to love bernie quite a lot so i did too but i thought that was funny that oh, then that's exactly what i was telling willie or saying to willie yesterday like yeah i guess with his position on gaza he's at least what <laughs> will said uh, war criminal adjacent <laughs> which I thought was pretty hilarious. So we will be sharing your question from Hella Answers as posted at our pa- uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, as well as at the Welcome to the Hell Hole page later on today's show following our October interview with uh, Alan Giebert on how the U.S. food system has little to do with actually feeding people. The person with our favorite answer, as always, uh, gets uh, their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can find all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And if you still need a gift, there's a great gift for somebody in your family. Especially if they have a MAGA hat, Toma, This Is Hell hat fits a lot better. You can still leave your uh, answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us at, at, on x at thisishellradio. 
You can post it in our Patreon on our Patreon page or in our Discord community, or you can just email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Seb Vooper and the past inside the present. Also, uh, coming up on the show, we have Jeff Dorchin doing the Moment of Truth. Chris, what's Jeff talking about this week? The forgiveness Jeff left unfinished on Yom Kippur. He's going to complete before the White People New Year. (laughs) So, coming up in the U.S., we put profits before everything, including feeding human beings. Chris shares some of your answers to the question from hell. Jeff has a Moment of Truth. And Chris will tell us who is our next guest on this year's edition of the Best of 2023. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and the fortune being made by Big Ag in the U.S. belies the fact that our for-profit, not-for-people food system has far less to do with feeding people than it has to do with profiting the already wealthy and powerful corporations that despite having many of the same rights as people here in the United States are thoroughly and could frankly not care less if we live or starve to death. They're so amoral, they could just care less. Thanks to Jen, Hugh, Ray, and Will for suggesting we replay our interview with Alan. Stay tuned in as Jeff will be delivering this week's moment of truth following our conversation on the disconnect between U.S. agriculture and actually feeding people. This is not the media. This is hell. This is hell. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell and wow, do we not know the value of the food we eat despite our obsession over its price. Low-cost, poor-quality food dominates grocery store and supermarket shelves in the United States, and it's destroying small-town rural America as well. Here to tell us how we ended up with such bad food and why it's tearing rural America to shreds, award-winning agricultural journalist Alan Giebert posted the Baffler Magazine article, Farmed Out, American Agriculture is About Business, Not Food. Alan, welcome to This Is Hell. It's really an honor. This writing is absolutely fantastic. I truly appreciate you being on the show. Well, thank you very much. You can follow Alan on Twitter at... Alan Giebert, that's G-U-E-B-E-R-T. Find his column at farmandfoodfile.com. You start by writing that the professor in your class for farm management uh, when you were in school uh, walked briskly to the small lectern in the third floor classroom where only the chalk dust had changed in 50 years. Boys, he announced as he settled into position, this is Agricultural Economics 220 Farm Management. He was right. We were, in fact, all boys. There were a few women studying ag economics or even agriculture at the University of Illinois in 1974. None of us looked like 1974, though. We were fresh off long summers on our home farms. Our job was to learn agriculture, and that was uh, more important than any work we might have been contributing to the farm or the family's business. Many of us already knew farming, when to plant when to harvest, what ailments might strike a milk cow or fat hog. Few of us had been introduced to this ever-growing science behind all that planting, harvesting, feeding, and sweating, and ag economics, farm management, not a chance. So 
Alan, if you and your... I had the same conversation. Oh, now I'm forgetting his name. Uh, he wrote a book called The Mad Cowboy, all about uh, mad cow disease. But uh, it, 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 he uh, talked about the exact same thing. If, if you and your family were successful at least maintaining a farm enough for it to be your livelihood, why did you and your family... Why did you choose to go to school? Why did your family choose to send you to school for farm management when you and your family were already managing a farm? What led to the belief that by going to college, you could improve upon what your family had already been doing successfully for generations? Well, when I was a a young man uh, 50 years ago, farming was already changing. Farming was already moving away from the old, quote, way of life to this is a business. And by that, you know, we had heavy science coming into play, like agronomy, uh, economics, dairy science, soil science, water science even, and a lot of new programs coming in. The government was playing a larger and larger role uh, in, in the marketplace, not on the farms, but in the marketplace. And you had to adapt to that. And by adapting to that, you needed to learn. You needed to learn the science behind what the government was doing. You know, the government... You, you, the United States Department of Agriculture was a juggernaut in, in, in uh, agronomic and animal research, and you needed to get in on all that. And in agriculture, over the decades, it's a proven principle that it's the early adapters that make the money. By the time the rest of the people, the rest of the farmers, dairymen, hog producers, cattlemen, learn the newer technology, the profit is already out of it, and and the, and the early adapters are moving on to something else. So you had to keep up in order to keep up. If you didn't keep up, you were slowly sinking. And it, it didn't matter, I suppose, if, if you were fine with the idea that you didn't want to change. You could remain. You wouldn't grow. You wouldn't be any more profitable. In fact, you would probably be shrinking, and there would be fewer and fewer opportunities for you to grow. So off to college, my brothers and I went, and uh, one went on, my oldest brother went on to become, uh, uh, he graduated in Southern Illinois University, returned to the farm to milk cows with my father. And then I finished college and came home to the farm with my brother and my dad already there. But uh, there wasn't enough room, so I I then went back to college and, and got into journalism. So uh, the gentleman I was thinking of before is Howard Lyman, uh, his 2001 book, Mad Cowboy, Plain Truth from the Cattle Rancher Who Won't Eat Meat. Uh, I thought about that book when I was reading your work because of his experience going back to school to learn agriculture as the son of a farmer of a generations long held family farm. And he talked about the way in which chemicals being used in agriculture were great for production at the beginning, but then eventually took all of the nutrients out of the soil. For you, was farming, uh, for your family at least, was farming becoming unsustainable or as a way of life? Did farming need to become a business to be sustainable for a family? Well, if you weren't going to expand, say, your base acres and grow your farm from one, from say, for um, sake of an example, from 500 acres to 1,000 acres, you couldn't accommodate a second family. Margins were always uh, being squeezed. The price per bushel 
was being squeezed. There were a lot of pressures and globally pressures started entering the U.S. farm market. You know, uh, competitors like Brazil, uh, Argentina began to really enter the market. So you needed uh, you needed more acres in order to compete or even stay at the level of profitability for a second family, let alone a third family, or you needed to add another enterprise. Say we had a big dairy and we milked a hundred cows. And my brother and I, our plan was to come home to the farm and double that number of cows, make it 200. And then we could easily afford one of us to. And then the, the, the other enterprise we thought we'd add were hog production. Well, the problem with all of that, it's a great idea. The problem with all of that is like a lot of farms back then and even many, many farms today, they're controlled by a single person or a single entity. And the, if that person doesn't want to follow your plans, you really don't have any ability to then get into the farm and, and, and stay, have any staying power. And that's exactly what happened. My father told my brother and I that the day that he borrowed, he'd borrow money, and that's the only way to expand the dairy was to borrow money. Well, the, the day we borrowed money, it'd make the front page of the St. Louis paper. We grew up around St. Louis. So that was a pretty big, clear signal. It was time for me to leave the farm and go back to college. <laughs> so you write that over the next 50 years, we remade America's small farms and small towns into an industrial food juggernaut. Our farmers and ranchers would feed and clothe the nation, and we would immodestly and erroneously claim much of the world. Even as the percentage of personal income spent on food by all Americans fell by 11.5%. So what role did becoming a business instead of remaining a way of life, what role did that play in driving prices down? Well, it increased production and um, it made, you know, when you start adopting uh, heavy science towards these old concepts, for instance, like husbandry, I mean, try to describe animal husbandry to somebody who's not raised on a farm. And they'll just wonder, what are you, what are you so in love with that cow for? I mean, the cow is sick, and you know, perhaps it's not economical to keep that cow. And you're like, well, no, 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 no. That's that's the family cow. We're going to do, you know, hell or high water. We're going to save that cow. So concepts like that quickly faded when you're just dealing with dollars and cents. And the example I can best give on our farm was. Like I said, we had a big dairy, even for the, the late 60s and early 70s. It was a big dairy. It's a lot of cows. And of course, it was all, we had milking machines. It was all heavily industrialized. We had more stainless steel and glass in our dairy barn than my mother ever had in her kitchen. And uh, so once a month, the university man would come around and, quote, test the milk. What they were doing was really measuring the productivity of each and every animal. And then after that, he would he would uh, fill out all the records for us. And a couple of weeks later, we'd get a record of uh, that month's production. And what it showed my father was the animals that weren't meeting the averages. And if that animal wasn't meeting the average, we had a saying, if you don't put it on in the bucket and instead you put it on your back, you're gone. So he would sell those cows to either another dairy farmer who wanted even worse animals than we had, or they would go to the stockyards in East St. Louis, Illinois, where they would quickly become hamburger and McDonald's. So that wasn't the way the old days made it work. The old days, you know, you milk cows, 
because you needed the milk and you needed the cream. No, this we did it because we needed the money. And it was a purely profitable enterprise. And if an animal there was eating hay and, and corn and not putting enough in the bucket to justify their costs, she was gone. And that's really what happened in the 60s and the 70s across the whole spectrum. You went from small, say, cattle feeders who had 20 or 30 head of cattle every winter just to keep busy. They fed them hay and the grass that they came from the you know, unused portions of their farm. Then in the spring, they would sell those cattle and make money. You can't find a 20 or 30 head cattle feeder today. You can, if you, you need to look for ones that are 2,000 or 5,000, and even 100,000 head cattle feeders are very common today, especially in Nebraska and the, and the panhandle of Texas and Colorado. So we've, we've supersized everything. We've super supersized everything in production because margins are so thin that you need to be, you run right on the ragged edge of profitability. And then just in case you have say a, a drought uh, and a portion of the nation doesn't grow enough corn or soybeans or wheat, the prices will take off. And if you have enough, you're in a really good place because all of a sudden prices double or triple and you're, you're making vast profits. That's really what you kind of hang on for. That happens more, more commonly than you would think. It happens far more often than you would think. Um, be, uh, so farmers, you know, farmers are businessmen. They're, they, they just happen, their, their, their factories just happen to be their farms. And we'll get back to that idea of switching the feed for livestock from hay and grass to corn in a moment. But why do you say that the U.S. feeding the world is an erroneous claim? How important is the business of U.S. agriculture to fighting global undernourishment, malnutrition, starvation, uh, accessibility to food? Is there any evidence that the U.S. feeds the world any more or less with the business of agriculture rather than farming as a way of life? Well, there's a, a great deal of evidence. For instance, if you track U.S. exports, ag exports, and that's what we brag about quite a bit. You are, American farm exports are, you know, these this amount of billions or this amount of billions, and they're we're feeding the world. You actually track where those go. They only go to the richest countries in the world. They go to Japan. They go to China. They go to Europe for the most part. They don't go to the hungry uh, parts of the world where people are starving or people are hungry. Simply because, as you know, anyone who looks into it knows, you know, hunger is not a function of production. Hunger is a function of poverty. And if you do not have the money to buy our food, we don't sell you our food. We don't even give you our food. In fact, for American um, exports, donated exports like corn or soybean or wheat or flour uh, to be even get to the nations that we donate it to, it has to generally travel on American ships. And there aren't many American ships, so we double and triple the price of that actual donation by requiring in the Farm Bill that it move on American, what we call American bottoms, American flagged bottoms. They have to be ships run by the American merchants. So we we, we don't even give that portion of it away. Um, it's pretty widespread knowledge that you know, if if you think if you think uh, hunger is a function of food, just walk in any grocery store. There's there's what forty million Americans that go to bed every night 
hungry, if not on the edge of starvation. And every grocery store in America is full. You've never walked in a grocery store and seen an empty shelf or empty shelves. So, you know, if you don't have the money here or abroad, you don't get our food. And then the other thing is we've built a great farm policy, a five-year farm bill, each and every five years and even shorter periods of time on the concept that American agricultural profitability is built on exports. We're going to blow a hole in that one. We blew a hole in that one last year, this year, and it's going to just get bigger because for the first time in 30 years, there's going to be a run here, and probably it's going to be something that lasts forever, that American food imports will be larger than American food exports. So we now are a net food importer, not a net food exporter like we were when we dominated commodity production, corn, soybean, wheat, cattle. Those are just all commodities. You know, they're not, quote, food. They're, they're commodities that people can then use to make food or use for food or use for even planting. But we import more food today, and those imports are food. They are mushrooms and wine and fine candies and chocolates and cocoa and coffee. We import the high-end, high-value stuff, and we try to dump or export the low-value or the commodity side. And it's finally caught up with us, and we now are a negative uh, food importer. Not, not only not to mention uh, the impact that that has on climate change from us importing ra- ra- or exporting, I'm sorry, importing food instead of just using the food here within the United States, all the costs of climate change when it comes to shipping around the world. You write of the price of food falling after farming change from a way of life to a business. It wasn't a miracle. It was a balancing and rebalancing of science, politics, and money, a lot of money, in fact, mostly taxpayer money. Together, this most American trinity built the most productive and most unhealthy food machine in history's 100 centuries of agriculture. How much is that productivity dependent upon the food being of poor quality, even unhealthy? You were mentioning the change from uh, hay and grass-fed cows to corn-fed cows. I was just speaking with my... uh, father-in-law and he was telling me how the other day he had a, or it's a couple months ago actually he had a grass-fed steak and he just was stunned he was like this is what steak tasted like when i was a kid it doesn't taste like this anymore so how much is that productivity of big agriculture or agriculture in general dependent on the food being of poor quality and not as healthy well i don't think anybody set out to make it intentionally make it a poorer quality than what it was but that's where we did end up because science and economics dictate really the quality of the food anymore if you if it takes you say two and a half two years 18 19 20 months say to grow an animal from uh, birth a, a calf say a, a beef calf from birth to your plate about 15, 16 months, it'll be corn-fed along the way. It'll be on your plate. If it takes you, say, 24, 25 months to get that animal to your same plate because it's grass-fed, which one is the economically driven rancher or feedlot owner going to do? Well, he's going to do the shorter one because that's going to you know, magnify his profits and give him a better opportunity to turn over and make put more steers through his lot. 
Now, a cow has, you know, anatomically four stomachs, and the four stomachs are required to eat grass. In fact, if you pour corn into a cow like we do, corn and soybean meal, soybean meal is the protein, corn is the starch or the sugar that allows them to gain weight. Just think of yourself eating sugar um, with a little bit of, of protein thrown in so you don't die. You're not really raising a healthy animal, and that's why you have a lot of what they call um, animal health products. It's really medicine and medication. Most animals in, in the United States, chickens, pigs, and, and, and beef being the three, the biggest trinity, are, are fed sub-therapeutic um, antibiotics so that they overcome the effects of eating grain. Pigs can eat grain, but pigs too would rather have grass. They have a single stomach, not four. But chickens are omnivores, you know, they'll eat anything. And so you feed them more grass, you feed them more grain. Chickens actually are incredibly intensively farmed and, and intensively researched. For every pound of grain you feed a chicken, it'll grow a pound of chicken, a pound of poultry. And hogs are not that efficient. Hogs are maybe three to one, three pounds of grain to one pound of gain, they call it. And then cattle use seven to eight pounds of grain for each pound of gain. So they're notoriously inefficient. So, um, and that's also the reason why you're seeing beef fall a little in favor with American consumers. You know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, the Amer American, average American per capita ate about 75 pounds of beef. Today, they only eat about 56 pounds. It's expensive and they don't care for it. It's, it's, it's less edible because we've now industrialized that process. Poultry is doubled in consumption per capita because really it's gotten cheaper and it's less fatty. So it's quote healthier, but it's not really healthier unless you buy an organic chicken because what that, what that, that commercial chicken was raised on, I don't think you'd like to know blood meal, bone meal, you know, soybean oil, soybean meal, a chalk. There's a lot of things that go into a quote balanced ration that tries to emulate what the chicken would be getting out if it's just walking around. And the easiest way to raise a chicken is let it out, let it walk around. And that's what you're seeing in, in organic, the rise of organic. But even at that, we've industrialized the process, the organic process so much that you can't, it's untrustworthy too, in my view. And, and hogs are the one animal that we've really industrialized. We've made, we've turned them into absolute factories from birth from birth to your dinner plate is six months. And they'll go from like eight and a half, nine pounds at birth to almost 300 pounds in six months. That's how we've we've zombied out these hogs and made them into these massive bacon machines, hams and bacon machines. Um, dairy cows, when I was on a farm, We'd have cows that are eight or nine years old, and we'd steady production producers, really great uh, animals, you know, friends almost. Today on a dairy farm, if you have an animal three years old, it's it's a mistake because they're they make two times as much milk per animal today than they did when I was on the farm. And there's only one way to do that, and as that is to study every aspect, every molecule, every atom of dairy, and 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 make it point it towards production capacity and that's what they've done so we've really changed the whole basis of production and in changing the basis of production 
we've also changed the, the end product. So if you look at, go to your cupboard and actually look at what you buy or go to your refrigerator and even look in there, what you what's in there, you will not find a lot of raw food. You won't find anything more than lettuce. And I would be really hesitant to eat romaine lettuce. We, in fact, the, the head of the USDA's Food Inspection Service said just a month ago she never eats romaine lettuce because it's it's probably, you know, contaminated with something, be it animal feces or chemicals. And that's a, that's a hell of an admission, isn't it? And then, um, but you look at what you have in your cupboard and then I will promise you that 80% of it plus will be what I call manufactured food. It'll be crackers or cookies or processed in some manner. And the processing will have added sugar or salt or both. You know, because we we food manufacturers have have trained the American palate to lust after the, those two items in order to sell more bulk, and they do that to an nth degree. We were just in Europe over the summer, and my wife was commenting to a friend just the other day that the food just tasted so much more like food over there. Well, and the friend noted that it wasn't it didn't have the salt and sugar in it that American market food usually has in it. So it's it's evident, it's plain. Look at our health, look at the way we spend on our healthcare. We spend more as a percentage of GDP on our healthcare than we do on food. That should be telling right there. Food should be something that makes you healthy, not ill. And we really don't have that in America. And it's gonna be any, it's gonna be really a long time for any reclamation of that uh, returns. Well, that was very frightening because I love romaine lettuce, so I'm now feel like I'm going to have to uh, look into that. But you were also mentioning how organic chickens, even that organic farming process is suspect. I've had people tell me who are very uh, hesitant about eating organic or cage-free food that you don't know what those chickens are eating, that those chickens that are cage-free could be eating anything. You have no idea of what it is, and so you should be hesitant in purchasing or eating cage-free chickens. Is that true, that we have no idea when a chicken is cage-free what it is eating? Well, to some degree, if you're, I, I suppose, if you're unethical, um, but the USDA organic rules have been so loosened and are so loosely enforced. The idea that they don't, they're not followed, or that your organic chicken may not be completely organic, I'd say, is a virtual certainty, um, because there's just not that many people enforcing the rules. For instance, if you have a cage-free chicken, that doesn't mean the chicken is out is is cage-free. Under the USDA rule, that chicken can actually be indoors for up to eight hours a day. Doesn't mean that chicken's out walking around. It should mean that the chicken is free walking around and quote being what they say is quote happy. But you know, for the most part, it's not. It's same with organic milk. By USDA standards, that that cow should be out on quote pasture or farmland eight hours a day. There's no chance, given the amount of organic milk sold in this country, that it comes from all cows that have that in their background. Just zero chance, none. Moreover, they, they must be fed organic grain, organic soybean, organic corn. We don't raise enough organic corn or organic soy to feed all the animals that are claimed to be fed with organic grain. They just can't do it. And moreover, then you start moving to organic fruit, for instance. 
A couple of years ago, there was an enormous fight in the organic industry, two or three years ago, over maybe even longer, five years ago, over uh, hydroponic production of organic food. Now, by definition alone, organic food is soil. It's raised to with soil. So if you want to grow something hydroponically, always only in water, how the hell can that be then organic? Well, it can be if USDA says it's organic, and that's exactly what happened. And now most of the organic tomatoes you find in your grocery store in the dead of winter, uh, and think about that, where how do these tomatoes, organic tomatoes get to me in the dead of winter? Or the blueberries, do you ever notice the price of blueberries have gone from like, say $10 a, a, a carton to five? Well, that's because they're hydroponically produced en masse in greenhouses, you know, year round. The biggest exporter of blueberries to the United States, who never, we never had blueberry imports. We always had enough blueberries raised here in Maine, Michigan, Northern Indiana, some from Canada. But the biggest source of American blueberries now is, you're not going to believe this, it's Peru. Peru exports about a billion dollars of blueberries a year because we changed the organic standards here in the U.S. for hydroponic. And the blueberry market took up. And people all over the world, no matter where you farm, you're not dumb. You see those markets, you're going to jump in them. And that's what happened to the blueberry market. That's why you see blueberries so cheap. But it doesn't mean they're organic. It means they're are, are grown organ organically under USDA rules. There's a huge movement in this country against the USDA's organic program, simply because, as you read or as your, your source tells you, it's just not it's just not organic anymore. It's not what it was meant to be. And there's also that's also indicated in the amount of organic sales. We have about sixty billion dollars of organic food sales in this country. It hasn't really moved a lot, grown a lot in the last two or three years. And I suspect that's because people don't believe in the quote organic nature of organic food that much anymore. My best advice is for you to find a local farmer if you're able to, and buy direct from them. Just buy direct. Just say, I'm going to spend a day out here on the farm, see what you do. And if you're not happy with, say, the way they grow chickens or the way they make milk, don't buy their milk and don't buy their chickens. You know, that's the only thing you can really do. You know, I, I always swore people, people liked farmers, befriended farmers, because they wanted to eat like us farmers. Oh, man, I grew up, we were, we had the best food in the world every day, fresh and milk, and we had a vegetable garden, you know, it's the size of the average, well, twice the size of the average home. It was huge. And we eat our own, our own butchered pork, our own butchered beef. We eat like kings because we work like slaves. And uh, we'll never get that food back. I mean, we'll just, I'll never get that food back. We try, but you have to be very, very informed in order to buy what you would think, what most people would think is organic food. So I would rather not buy industrial, industrially produced food simply because I do not want to condone that system. But is it any more or less safe to eat organa organically produced food rather than industrially produced food? Oh, I would say so, sure. I would say so, organic food, still cannot be, you know, 
for most organically raised vegetables, for instance, uh, green beans, peas, beets, potatoes, all that soil raised, if they're raised in soil, has to be chemical free from, for five years in order to be certified as clean organic. And if you know you can't use any chemicals on it at all, you can't even use chemical fertilizers. So, for the most part, it should be, it should be okay. But again, like I say, if you find a local organic farmer, and there are any, as we used to say on the farm, if there are any count, they will welcome you to see what it is that they do, and then in return, you don't haggle on price; you pay them. They work 70, 80 hours a week to deliver you the best food. And the other thing you should be quite aware of, if you, if you think, if your instinct says, well, this shouldn't be in season right now, then it's not in season. Don't buy it. It's probably been shipped in from someplace. For instance, if you live in the upper Midwest or the Midwest in, in the United States, you're not going to get sweet corn, sweet corn in March on the cob or April or June or May or probably even early June, you're going to have to wait for it to come into season in June, July, and August. And likewise with tomatoes. And then September and October, guess what? You're not going to be eating those because they're not in season. You know, one good way to follow it, perhaps, is follow what the menu of, say, your local farm-to-table restaurant is serving. If they're serving, say, beets, you know, fresh beet salad in November, that's what's fresh. You know, that's what you ought to be focusing on, those those tube crops from the from the ground that you know can can withstand a little frost a little cold swiss chard spinach you're not going to get leaf lettuce you know you're going to have to have keep your eye on what and, and and be informed you know i i get so tired of farm groups say well we just got to educate the american consumer that's pre so presumptuous i think the american consumer is fully educated what they need is information and there's a difference there. If you give them enough information, they'll make the right choice for them, not for you. And that's what you ought to be doing as a producer. You know, we spend a billion, farmers spend a billion dollars a year trying to influence what it is you buy and, and how you buy it or how it's made. Uh, you know, they want you to follow what it is they do, not what you want. So, you know, the way you get around that is, is gather information and make intelligent choices in decisions that you think are right for you or your family or your community. And that's a big deal. You know, we, it used to be more and more we used to do that. Now, you know, we look at our checkbook and we make choices. And that's not a good way to do it. And I'll give you a perfect example in my view. It's maybe more than what you want to know. But say you go to the grocery store and you buy beef. You want a you want a ribeye steak, and and this happened to me not too long ago, ten years within the last ten years. I went to the local grocery store and they had a sale on ribeyes, and I love ribeyes, so I went there and and I go to the meat counter and they say oh, there's a whole meat counter full of ribeyes all packaged separately, and each one of them says Angus Angus beef ribeye. So I asked the guy wearing a white coat, who's not a butcher, he's just the guy you know putting the meat out, and I said, what grade are these? You know, what, you know, what did USDA say is their quality? What is their grade? There's three grades in beef. That's um, prime, which, of course, you know what that means. That's prime rib. That's prime, you know, steaks. Then there's select and then there's choice. There's only three. Well, I asked the, the gentleman at the meat counter, what, what, what are these three 
uh, grades. Which one? Which are these? He looks. He picks up a meat cake. He picks up a piece of a steak and he reads the label, and it says Angus. So I said, "Well, it's Angus." I said, "Angus is a breed. What's what's the grade? What did USDA say this this grade is? Because it, if it's if it's uh, prime, you know right from the start that it's the best. But only like six percent of all the animals raised in America grade prime. So the odds that that's going to be a prime steak are zero because they're not selling them on sale at Kroger. And then so that leaves choice or select of those two. What do you think is the better of the two, choice or select? I would think it's choice. It is choice. And 15 to 20 percent of all cattle grade choice. The rest grade select. That means 70% of the cattle in this country wow. are, are run-of-the-mill cattle. And that shouldn't be a bother if the steak I was looking at was that really right at the top of select and almost prime or almost choice. But the odds are that it would be a steak from the very bottom of select, you know, the, the last two or three percent of the animals. So I, I asked the guy again, is this, what what grade is this? He said, they're Angus. And so you need to walk away. <laughs> they don't even know what they're selling. So you just, need to, you just need to say, you know, you're a fool and I'm not going to be a fool, fool there. I don't run a fool there in here. And, and if American consumers knew that, then, then the stores, the retailers, the, the big slaughters, couldn't get away with it, but they get away with it all the time. And you know, the price you paid for that worst steak in that meat case was probably just a dollar less than you could have paid for the best steak in that that whole meat case. Wow. So that's the difference. Do you want good quality, high quality food? Do you want food that's actually good for you and the farmer? Or do you want, you know, whatever your checkbook says and it's okay? Keep in mind that we spend half of our food dollars outside the home in restaurants and fast food. You know, we we are on the run generally, and you you know that's that's just crazy. You know, so you know you're you're overpaying for that food, and you're under and you're overpaying for the quality of that food because most of it, you know, comes off the truck frozen truck you know uh, you know the, that morning or that that monday but is it absolutely necessary to have food be low cost and potentially lower quality in order for the most precarious the most vulnerable in our society to have access to that food is this an absolutely necessary system that in, it incentivizes and ensures low-cost food, poor-quality food, because that is the only way that people can have access to uh, any kind of food. Well, I would argue no, and a loud no. In fact, a loud hell no, because you know you can have you can have. Look at in Europe, you spend twenty fifteen to twenty percent more for food at the grocery store. You spend, if not more, really thirty percent. And you spend, you don't spend as at, at that much more in, in the restaurants for good food in Europe because uh, there's so much competition, there's so much uh, effort to get you in for good food. You don't spend that much more in Europe. 
but it's what you emphasize. I like to say it this way. You know, it's like I noted in that Baffler story, and I've done this dozens of times and across the years, given speeches. You go to a farm crowd and you'll be two, 300, 400, 500 people in the crowd. And they're all quite a bit older. They're all white haired, you know, because the, the average American farmer is 56 years old. And something like 5% of all farmland in Iowa is still owned by, by widows 95 years and older. So we still have a lot of old people in agriculture. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that we're getting aged out here. But you ask this crowd, you know, how many people here have been to Europe? And you, you, I'm never surprised by how many people hold up their hand because we're all largely rural Americans are from European descent. So they went back to the old country, more than half, usually two thirds to three quarters of the people raise their hand. And then you say to them, well, what do you remember about your trip to Europe? And they, they, you know, they buzz around a little bit. And then I say, I mentioned, they, was it the food? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable, the high quality of food we had. You know, the, the fresh bread, the cheeses, the wines. I mean, every country, you know, Italy, or uh, France, Belgium, Germany, you just every country we went to, the food was great. I said, well, what was the next, what's the second thing you remember? Oh, the little villages. They're so beautiful. And, you know, they're so well kept. And every one of them had a bakery and a cheese, little cheese shop or a butcher shop, you know, and grocery store stores were so tiny. And of course, all the food in there was fresh. And it's just, and then you finally say, well, isn't that amazing? Do you, do you think that was an accident or do you think that's the way it is? And they look at you like, what are you saying? And then you say, well, you tell them, well, that's not an accident. Their agricultural policy emphasizes food and culture, the agriculture side, food plus living, and ours emphasizes production. And along the way, they've, they've spent a great deal of money to preserve their culture of food, and we spent a great deal of our money to destroy it. And, and they've succeeded and we've succeeded. And which one would you rather be in? You just told me you had a great time in Europe and you love those towns and you could eat like that forever. Well, you still can. I mean, you just can't vote the way you're voting. You just can't continue to, to say that the way we farm in this country is okay because it's cheap. It isn't cheap. Your health, your, health, your life, your community depended upon it. And now it's gone. Your farms are gone. Your rural communities are gone. The things that, that agriculture and food supported. And uh, and they said, well, we just can't afford it like Europe. That's the argument I've been hearing for 45 years. When I started in ag journalism, I was uh, the, the European Union, and it was small back then, six or seven countries, spent a billion dollars a year on farm programs. And we spent like 300 million. And they said, look at those crazy Europeans. They're, they're spending so much money, they're gonna go broke. Well, last year they spent $80 billion on their farm programs, and we spent about, 35 billion. So the ratio is still in place, really. But look what they got for it. They made a choice, a political choice. And so did we. And it's it's just what it is that you want. You have to decide whether you want a vibrant rural community that depends on itself and others, as opposed to one that depends on government programs and where the farmers themselves can't even grow enough food, don't even grow food to support their own habit, their eating habits. Now think about that. Which way, where, where would you rather live? And I'm not being an 
an Anglophile or a Frenchophile or that. That's just the reality of the way it used to be in America. You write that last suggestion when you were talking to these uh, audiences about uh, when they go to Europe, what it's like when they're eating their food. You write the last suggestion that it's more of a focus on production rather than on food. Almost always turned the audience's warm smiles into cold frowns. They knew they had been caught in a web of their own making. The paradox that lies at the heart of the American food system. Contrary to what is often projected by rural America itself, our food doesn't come from farms with red barns, contented cows, and straw-hatted farmers holding a pitchfork in the sun's golden glow. Instead, today's food is the product of a highly industrialized, oil-fueled, climate-changing machine built largely on lax environmental standards, loose animal welfare rules, non-existent antitrust enforcement, and enormous government subsidies to deliver food that is plentiful, cheap, and increasingly harmful to the people who consume it and the rural communities that produce it. In your opinion, why do so many in farming communities want to keep that romantic vision of farming alive if that system has been, to a certain degree, to a vast degree, erased by big agriculture? Well, I think the romantic view is fast fading in American agriculture, rural America. And in my generation, when we go, it'll be gone because this the current generation, I worry about this a great deal. They don't know anything else than what they see and what they experience now, and that's this industrial industrial juggernaut. They don't. They've never seen neighbors helping neighbors. They've never raised cattle, for instance, if their corn soybean grows in central Illinois. They've never. They've never seen corn or soybeans if they're ranchers out in the western South Dakota. You know, they they're so specialized. They're like factory workers, and in and in fact, they are. They're, like I said earlier, their factory is just their farm or their ranch. And they don't, they, they, even if they wanted to, they can't buck that system because now it's so developed for them to fall into or them to follow that they just can't get out of it. And they're so dependent on, on the system that we have built in this country. I mean, I'll give you a quick example. You, as the, the Republicans were imploding in the House of Representatives the last two weeks, they bragged about how they passed three of the four spending bills that were before them. And they did. You know the fourth bill they didn't pass because they couldn't agree on it? The farm bill. That's how that's how controversial the farm bill has gotten in Washington. They, they didn't have enough money in it. Uh, or it had too much money. And I mean, the, the forces uh, trying to write the farm bill were unbelievably uh, bitter and angry about what was in that bill. Uh, nobody talked about farmers. Nobody talked about food quality or health. Nobody talked about the rural economy. They just talked about money and the way and, and how much is needed to maintain the status quo. As you know, our friend Jim Hightower says, status quo is Latin for the, you know, the mess we're in. And it, and it is a mess. We we have done nothing but, but make it messier in the last 30, 40 years of ag policy. You also point out that American agriculture is shot through with contradictions. For example, every farmer knows that good weather and superb crops usually means low prices and lean times. So what could be done so superb crops do not mean lean times for farmers? Well, 
But go back to when you had multi-crop agriculture, where you didn't have one or two uh, monocultures running the Midwest like corn and soybeans today. We now grow so little wheat. It's the equivalent of the amount of wheat grown in India in 1974. That's how far we've fallen on the wheat market because we've we've glorified and 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 focused so hard on corn and soybeans because farm programs, the, the benefits of growing corn and soybeans are bigger than they are for growing wheat. Farmers aren't stupid. They're economic animals. They'll go where the money is. And so they've grown far, they grow many, many millions of acres more of corn and soybeans than they do of wheat. And wheat's had to pay the price. And it won't be long before we, we will stop exporting. We will need to import it. And that's not uncommon. We've done that in uh, several crops. For instance, rye. Oats used to be one of the biggest crops grown in America simply when we had horses. And then you, we just consume a lot of oats. We import oats now because we don't grow enough because things have moved to you know these monocultures. So we can we can have a more balanced view of farm policy. We can subsidize, we're gonna subsidize agriculture anyway. Let's pick the ones we want to see back in America. For instance, there is the cap for government farm programs right now, the amount of money you're limited to accept per entity. And then to keep in mind, entities could be farms, subchapter C, S corporations, C corporations, regular corporations, partnerships. The $990,000 per entity. So if you farm big time, three or 4,000 acres, and that's not that big anymore, you can have three or four entities, and each entity can earn $990,000 in farm program payments. And that's not uncommon. So why are we allowing that and not putting a cap, say a hard cap of like $200,000 on it? Pick a number, I don't care. Anything under $990,000 and then use that money to subsidize or, in, or invest in small um, rural agriculture. I have said, if you, give, if you give me or somebody with a different idea, a dime from every dollar that's spent on farm programs, I can build it or you can build a successful rural economy, rebuild a successful rural economy, because they'll take off. They'll just do it. It's so rewarding. It's so, it'll be financially viable, again, instead of being crushed you know, by eight-wheel tractors uh, growing corn. So, you know, it's it's doable. If we do it, it's being done in Europe all the time. I mean, look around. We don't have to have 5,000-acre farms. There's a farm in Illinois, it's over 50,000. 50,000 acres. Now, keep in mind, there's 640 acres in a square mile. So you do the math. You can see how many square miles that is. And, and ask yourself, do you think they're doing a good job? Do you think they're they're maintaining the soil? Do you think they're not mining that farmland? And the real thing that they're actually selling is the minerals and the soil as it blows away and is shipped off. You know, how long can that go on before we turn this bountiful nation into one that's hungry? And it can happen. We've seen it happen all over the world. So we fool ourselves to believe that we're in control of nature. We aren't. I mean, that's a silly, silly pre precept. But you know, we're we're doing everything in our power to take to take you know humanity out of farming. And I'm often reminded, and just the other day I was mentioning this to a friend of mine about how in 1995 uh, Wendell Berry, a great agrarian writer from Kentucky, 
wrote a book and whose title was what are people for and in agriculture that's a question that should be asked more and more because we don't we've done everything we can and we're doing everything we can to remove more and more people from it and just boil it down to dollars and cents you know uh, uh, calories um, as you know we we look we, when we were in Europe one time, I was in Europe doing stories. Um, and a young Italian boy asked my family. He wanted to, you know, he had two questions. He wanted to know why uh, young men didn't live with their mothers. And, you know, my wife was drooling over this boy. What a beautiful boy. What a lively question. But the other question he said was, why do you eat in cars in America? Well, we eat in the car because food's fuel to us. It's not community. It's not neighbors. It's not friendship. It's not warmth. It's not conversation. It's not, you know, exchange of views. It's fuel. We have to get down the road to do more. And in doing more, we're actually done less. And we've hurt, we've hurt the whole food production system as, as it used to be. And now, 50 years later, I am deeply concerned that the institutional memory of all of what could be is fast fading. And But I still have hope that within a generation or two that they're going to rediscover agriculture, and they're going, but they're going to have to rediscover it all over again because they will have forgotten it. And they're going to, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be time-consuming. It's going to cause panic. But we'll go back to it because it's the only system that did work for over a hundred centuries. And we, we have to keep that in mind. It'll work again, even if it's just part ways. It doesn't have to be the whole way. We don't have to have it replace the whole current system. But the current the whole current system is not going to continue. It will collapse under its own hubris and its own weight and its inability to reproduce. Because we didn't take care of the elements that were absolutely required to grow food in this country. And we should be, we're smart enough to know that. What we're not is hungry enough to implement it yet. We will be. There seems to be bipartisan support, though, for big agriculture and for good reason that, you know, they have so much money and they can give money to campaigns and give money to lobbyists. Can we, you know, as a supposed democracy, can we vote big agriculture either to reform itself or out of power? No, you have to beat it. You have to beat it, you know, through your through the ballot box. But you have, but but that was that again. That's going to take information. That's and that's what Congress doesn't have. Congress has fooled itself into thinking that it 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 knows agriculture, and in agriculture, big ag doesn't want to talk again about food. You if. If constituents start talking about food and food quality and food accessibility and, and affordability, and instead of talking about, well, you know, or in communities, rural communities, instead of talking about just, you know, calories and, you know, uh, you know, basically repeating the big ag line that, oh, you're going to go hungry, folks. If, if you're not going to go hungry, even if big ag fails, because if big ag's most Ardent line of reasoning says, you know, get get government out of our business and we'll 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 run wild and do what it is. Well, free markets will take care of itself. Well, if in fact government was removed by Congress, you know what happened? 
small ag would rise because people would see vast opportunities all of a sudden. And the and the sword that big ag has been using to slay little ag over all these many, many years would be turned. And, and, and you know, these free markets would foster smaller farmers, smaller economic units. Say, say five farmers get together and they share production capabilities. One farmer grows this, another farmer grows that. And, and they integrate with livestock and they help each other out so they don't have to work 60 or 70 hours a week. It'll work. It worked in the past. That's why it'll work in the future. But no, Congress, Congress is fooled by, you know, they fear they're going to go hungry. They fear that, you know, um, uh, small farmers will fail this big country. They won't. They didn't. They have never. We were exporting food in the Revolutionary War. We, we exported wheat to Great Britain. And don't forget cotton, you know. So America's always been a food-producing uh, juggernaut. We can do that. But what we can't do is have Congress believe it's going to, it knows food and food production or the big ag knows food or food production better. The, the, the real beneficiaries of all of this industrialization is, of course, the industries, you know, the fertilizer industry. You know, the biggest potash and phosphate companies, only two or three companies in the whole world. One of them, 40% of the world market of potash, I guess, comes from where? Russia. Uh, so, you know, we might be about, about enemies, but farmers kind of like Russian potash, and we still import a lot of that stuff. So, you know, this is, you, st you start looking into these things, and you wonder, you see paradox upon paradox, and I don't think there's a lot of future in paradox. Uh, I think there's a lot more future in being honest and truthful and supporting local agriculture. Alan, one last question for you. We have been speaking with award-winning agricultural journalist Alan Giebert. He began his syndicated column, The Farm and Food File, began in 1993 and appears weekly in more than 50 newspapers throughout the United States and Canada. You can follow Alan on Twitter at Alan Giebert, G-U-E-B-E-R-T. Find his column at farmandfoodfile.com and I strongly suggest you do. We have been talking for nearly an hour and there is far more to this article than far more to his writing than just what we have talked about today. Alan, our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell because it's the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience may hate your response. You write the farm bill is never imagined as a way to reverse the concentration of control into fewer and fewer hands. Few measures, if any, will slow the demise of rural America. Few, in fact, ever have. In your opinion, if big agriculture continues to grow unchecked, what will happen to rural America. I have asked that of a lot of really bright people, well-informed people, thoughtful, caring people, and they all have the same answer. Uh, it, it will collapse. This way, uh, this system will collapse under its own weight because it's not now and never has and therefore can't supply what's really required. And that's healthy, vibrant, growing community. And agriculture should be about, should be about 
what it says it's about. It's a compound word, agriculture. It should be about food communities. And when we get away from that, we are slowly getting away from what's sustainable or even regenerative. And I use those terms cautiously because they mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. But in the way in, in the way of rural America, regenerative and sustainable used to be, was in fact, the way those communities grew and the way they supplied the world, especially your neighbors, your local communities with food, with high quality, low cost food. And um, after, or maybe hopefully before the collapse is complete, we'll get the uh, we'll get that message alan i have really enjoyed our conversation today and if you don't mind i'm going to annoy you over and over again in the future to be back on our show i really appreciate this conversation i learned so much from this that it reminds me of why i do this show so thank you alan so much for being on our show today my pleasure take care right. you've been listening to a this is hell interview for more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. If you enjoyed that talk with Alan on the U.S. agriculture system, prioritizing profits over actually feeding human beings, you know, people like you and me, and reminding us that, yes, money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for a completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support on our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. We did a recap of everything we've learned on this is hell over the last four months. Kinda. The problem was we learned so much, or at least I learned so much, in August and September alone that we had to break the review of what we've learned into two Patreon podcasts. In only those two months, we found out that there's a new youth movement on the left, which you would think would offer you some hope for the future. However, we also learned that there's a new youth movement on the far right as well. We were also reminded that neoliberalism is bad for everyone and everything, aside from the 1%. But, get this, it's even bad for capitalism, which you'd think would be a good thing. And it is, but it also means there's going to be a whole lot of suffering in our very near future, because capitalism, like conservatism, may be doomed, but both would rather take us all down with them than allow a world without greed and selfishness. From profiteering on police violence and big tech waste to heterosexuality not so long ago being understood as a perverse sexual obsession with the opposite sex, to the ongoing attack by private interests and their supporters in the government on public education, to Ukrainian victims of sex crimes at the hands of Russian soldiers being viewed by their neighbors not as victims but collaborators. We learned a lot in only those two months, and we will be reviewing what we learned in October and November on this week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which is going to be streaming live on Friday. Also on Patreon last week, in 2007, the staff of This Is Hell picked their favorite interviews of the year to be replayed. My choice was our June 30th, 2007 talk with Roger Morris, 
Roger was on to discuss his three-part history of U.S. intelligence and President George W. Bush's defense secretary at the time, Robert Gates. Gates would keep that position for the first three years of the Obama administration because apparently Obama was a secret fan of the Bush administration. Who knew? Uh, Gates was also CIA director under President George H.W. Bush. Meanwhile, Roger Morris had served in the Foreign Service and on the senior staff of the National Security Council under Presidents Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. Before resigning over the invasion of Cambodia, so he's had his beefs with foreign pol- U.S. foreign policy for a very long time, and he was one of only three officials comprising Henry Kissinger's special projects staff conducting the initial high, highly secret back-channel negotiations with Hanoi to end the Vietnam War. Roger, it turns out, did not like Robert Gates as much as apparently Presidents Bush Sr. and Bush Jr. or Obama did. And you can hear why he didn't like that or uh, and all of his problems with U.S. intelligence by listening to last week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. The only way you can hear our review of what he we learned in only two months on this is hell and an interview with a former Kissinger aide who resigned over the bombing of Cambodia on just how awful the U.S. intelligence sector is is again by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell by doing so you also get a discount code word for all of our stuff at this is hell.com when you click on support you get a sneak peek at every week's question from hell and you can ask a question from hell of me to me for me your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show live streaming and podcast host Chris, remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Are you going to do Welcome to the Hellhole or Facebook? Which one are you doing first? Uh, welcome to the Hellhole. Sweet. Uh, so let's see here. The question from hell is, now that Henry Kissinger is dead, who is the next war criminal you'd like to see keep Henry company in hell? <laughs> I like this one already. I know this is going to be good. We got a lot of responses. So, uh, Dango has two answers. First is Dick Cheney. Cheney spelled C-H-E-Y-N-E-Y. Okay. Cheney. Uh, the second one is, or any Trump. Okay. Any of the Trump family, I'm assuming. I guess. Oh, Dango has another one. Uh, why Ted K? Why Ted Kaczynski? Because he's on the choice in the picture here. Oh. Yeah, I can't remember. I mean, I read the Unabomber Manifesto. It was quite interesting, but it was many years ago. Yeah, I think I put I think I put conspiracy theory or something like that in uh, an images thing, and that's what popped up. I can't remember. My Polish brother Wojcie says Pat Boone. <laughs> He's already dead. <laughs> and then uh, Pete wrote Roseanne Carter. Hmm. Well, that's kind of mean. Uh, let's see here. And Kobe wrote, and or every living former U.S. president except Carter plus Netanyahu. All right. And then Clint wrote, what did Jimmy do? <laughs> I don't know what that is either. I have and, to go back looking through these. <laughs> and then Nick wrote, with no tongue in cheek, Oliver North. <laughs> That's a good one. That is a very good one. And then, um, let's see here, Adam wrote, Dick effing Cheney, ideally violently. (laughs) And let's see here. Yikes. 
And Quafna uh, wrote, I'm thinking some sort of King Ralph event at De uh, Davos would be balm for our souls. <laughs> no, I gotta watch King Ralph with John Goodman. I'm not gonna be doing that. I don't think anyone uh, under 40 knows that reference. <laughs> at least King I mean, I, I was in fifth grade when that came out, but like any millennial, I think, would be a little lost in that reference. Yeah, I so. think so too. And let's see here. Give me one moment. Uh, let's and then, of course, uh, we didn't have that many Facebook answers. Okay. Yeah, I gotta know what this piece of music is in the background. <laughs> I have no idea what this is. Horace, I know it's in the bank. Horace Silver. Really? Mm hmm And we do have uh, maybe like two answers on regular Facebook, and that is... Let's see here. Actually, one answer. Uh, two answers. First one is from Dick. He wrote Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, Fabio wrote Netanyahu, Bush, Putin, in order of whoever admires Kissinger most. <laughs> All right. I would have to say it would, my opinion, who admired Kissinger most, I would have to say probably Nixon and then, ironically, John McCain, in my opinion. Yeah. So, so uh, coming up on the, oh, first of all, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, they win whatever piece of merchandise, this hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our merchandise, all of our swag, all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And you can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it on our uh, Patreon page and our Discord community. Uh, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Dr. Seb Vupper and the past inside the present. When Seb, who is an historian by trade, offers the historical context of the past that we need to have a better understanding of our present. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth. More of your answers to this week's question from hell. Actually, I think we just ran through them all. Uh, we'll also tell you the uh, next best of 2023 interview as selected by listeners to and the staff of This Is Hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell, and I know, Chris, you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do, Hefe. One more time. Every genocide is special. It's getting near the end of Hanukkah when the presents get really good. No, that's a lie. They're always cheap BS. Yes, Hanukkah was a last-minute addition to the Jewish calendar. Not an important holiday as Jewish holidays go. It's proximity to Christmas, celebrating the birth of St. Nicholas, who died for our mistletoe, is responsible for the outsized focus it draws. But we never meant it to compete with Christmas, and that's why Jewish parents resent the implicit comparison, which is the main reason for the spitefully low quality of the gifts. But let me turn the tables. Christianity is history's most disgusting act of cultural appropriation. A bunch of Greeks and Romans basically stole God from the Jews and decided they'd write a sequel to the Tanakh. No one asked for that. What business you got doing that? I should kick your ass. What's the Tanakh? It's the five books of Moses, plus all the stuff like Chronicles and Kings and Judges and Esther and Job and Ruth. Everything biblical but the New Testament, which is the Gospels and their accumulated detritus. Tanakh 
is the Hebrew Bible, much of it told better than the equivalent versions in the Christian Bible, particularly what we call Koheleth, which the Goyim call Ecclesiastes. Koheleth. So much cooler. What were you thinking? Y'all have no shame. You destroy the temple, drive the Jews from the land, and steal their God and their books. And the worst part is you don't even know what the hell you're talking about most of the time. I had a Catholic woman tell me that original sin is disobedience. Adam and Eve were told not to eat the special fruit, but did it anyway. I told her, uh, yeah, that's true for Jews. But for Catholics, original sin is sex. She got offended. She said, sex is considered a good act. I said, nope, that's the Jews again. Sex is a mitzvah. Be fruitful and multiply. Catholicism has sins, but no mitzvot. And sex is one of them. That's why priests are celibate. So they're not tainted by sins of the flesh. Recognize the Catholic term and can therefore communicate with God. What do you think sins of the flesh mean? eating meat on Friday? It's sex. That's why the Virgin Mary's mother had to conceive Mary without doing the nasty. She'd never heard of that. It's called the Immaculate Conception, I pedagogled on, as opposed to the virgin birth, which is what Mary had. Her mother, Saint Anne, was not a virgin, but she did conceive Mary without sin, immaculately. We looked up Immaculate Conception versus Virgin Birth then and there. Of course, I was right, because as a Jew from whom theological concepts are constantly being stolen, I try to keep tabs on what the dirty Ghanifs are up to, but leave it to an unknowledgeable Catholic apologist to try to steal the good bits of Judaism for her own sick, plagiaristic religion, which she doesn't even believe in anyway. Lapsed Catholics talking about Catholicism should maybe not... Now, this next point is a bit of a stretch, but bear with me, and you might earn some good stretch marks. This is why Jews are so prickly about being accused of genocide. Jews committed some genocide in the Tanakh, but they didn't invent it. More to the point, Moses was himself the product of genocide. The Pharaoh wanted to kill all the firstborn males of the Hebrews. They weren't called Jews yet. The Christians stole that tale, incidentally, casting Herod in the role Pharaoh played. I mean, what the hell, dudes? Get your own genocidal origin story. Here I want to say a word or two about the Armenians. Oh my God, they are so jealous. Everyone talks about the Holocaust, but no one talks about the Turks exterminating the Armenians. Boo-hoo-hoo. Listen, believe me, you don't want a special genocide. All those movies... Black people found out they're getting sick of movies about black victimization during slavery and Jim Crow. Just look on black Twitter or black X, I guess. Just because yours doesn't have a special name doesn't mean it's not good. Every genocide is special in its own way. The Holocaust just happens to be the best one. So when the Palestinians refer to the Zionist ethnic cleansing with a special name, the Nakba, we get a little touchy. Those among the Palestinians who aren't Christian are mostly Muslim, who, by the way, are even more ambitious plagiarists than the Christians. So here come these monotheist-come-lately swinging their Nakba, you know, and it sets us off. We could kill tens of thousands, hell, hundreds of thousands of your innocents, and still the Holocaust, the Shoah. So nice, they named it twice. 
would kick the Nakba's ass into the next millennium. Who do you think you're dealing with here? Amateurs? The Irgun were better terrorists than you, and we most definitely are the better victims of genocide. Dude, that's our brand. Armenians have the Kingali and Lachmajun. Black people have soul food and jazz. Jews have matzah soup and genocide. Everything Palestinians are famous for, the Jordanians, Lebanese, and Syrians are too. Palestinians are just pissed off because their cuisine is so regionally endemic. Well, that and the genocide, I mean, Nakba. Anyway, I just want to clear the air. You people are thieves. You plagiarize the trappings of your holiday from pagans and Germans and your whole religion from the originators of everything from animation to the bagel, the Jews. And you Muslims... I don't know how you got away with your act of grand plagiaristic larceny. Kudos for not calling it the Third Testament, though. Very classy. Kur'an. I like the Q. I like the apostrophe. Very dune. Anyway, Goisha world, your year will soon be new. I don't subscribe to your calendrical tyranny, except where I must as a colonized person. But I do believe in starting a new year, whether solar or lunar, on a fresh footing, so I forgive you all and promise to wait till after the 1st of January before getting aggravated by the same stuff all over again. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day! Live from the land stolen from the Potawatomi people, the Ojibwe, Ottawa, Miami, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, and Sack and Fox Peoples. This is Hell. Chris, who is our next guest coming up during our series, the best of 2023 here? Whoa, what happened? Uh, it's it's okay. We're just having a little bit of a technical issue over here. No big deal. All right. Talk to you later, Chris, or Jeff. Uh, Chris, so who's coming up on the next show? We wrap up this week's best of 2023 shows by playing our talk with Joe Goldie on her Boston Review article, the Earth for Man, redistributing land for once central to global development efforts, and it should be today. This Is Hell has been named a finalist as Chicago's best podcast in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Reader's Poll. Also, your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz, that's me, has been nominated as a finalist in the same poll as Best Radio DJ. You can now vote for us under the City Life category, chicagoreader.com slash best. Polls are open through January 14th, 2024, and the winners will be announced sometime in February. We hope to see you all on Wednesday, December 20th, winter solstice eve for the annual This Is Hell holiday office party, which will be held during our regularly regularly scheduled office hours at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue beginning around 6 p.m. that evening. And yes, this is how office hours are happening this week, no matter the weather, on Wednesday evening, as they do most every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge again, 2251 West Devon Avenue. Thanks to Chris Coolfan for producing today's show. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell... 
And to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>